Please turn with me in your copies of Holy Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. On Sunday nights, we have been working our way through this very well-known chapter of Scripture, and we will continue to do that today with the next descriptor of love. Love does not envy. Love is not envious. Paul wrote this passage in the middle of a three-chapter block, an extended rebuke of the Corinthian believers. They were divided. They were disunified. They were causing all sorts of problems, specifically surrounding spiritual gifts. Some of them were privileging certain gifts while disdaining others. They were propping up those that had more impressive speaking gifts, all the while sliding those who had less impressive gifts from God. In short, they were not being loving. They were not being kind. They were not being patient. And they were envious. And it is on this last point, on sinful jealousy or envy or covetousness, that we will spend our time thinking this morning. But let's begin by reading our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I will read the whole chapter. Hear God's word for us this morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's ask the Lord to pray to bless us in our time together. Holy Father, we come to you as a needy body. Some of us have been laid low. Some of us are suffering. Some of us are distressed. Some of us are walking with haughty eyes and need to be laid low. For we have many needs, but you are the great physician. We ask that your Holy Spirit would feed us the medicine that each of us individually need, which is to see more of Christ and to be made more in his image. We ask that you would do that this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Excuse me. Envy or jealousy is a word that is used both positively and negatively in Scripture. 
It's used in several places to refer simply to someone who is zealous, very fervent. They are marked by diligent devotion to pursuing their goals. In that sense, it would be a positive thing. For example, Exodus 34, 14 says that the term jealousy is used to speak of God himself. Moses writes, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. But the context of each use of the word jealous or envious makes clear to us whether the author is meaning it to be positive or negative. And the meaning is clear here in our text. Love does not envy. Love does not sinfully desire that which it shouldn't have. And so my plan this morning is to give us five marks of envy, five fruit of envy, if you will, and then to see how Jesus relates to each one of those fruits, and then at the end to show us five parallel fruit of contentment, which is the opposite of envy. So first, let's look at envy. A first fruit of envy is that it lies about God. Envy lies about God. If you will think back with me to the very first case of envy in the garden, you'll remember how Satan uses envy to turn Adam's heart away from his creator. He tempted him to take the fruit that was forbidden. And what was one of the things that Satan used, one of the weapons that he employed. He asked a simple question, but with profound consequences. He said, did God really say you shall not eat of the fruit in, of any tree in the garden? Satan was questioning God's word and tried to use that deception to cloud Adam's judgment, to tempt him to violate God's law. And then he speaks another lie. He tells them that if he took the fruit, you'll surely not die. In fact, you'll be like God. He tempts Adam to forget who he was, a creature made in the very image of God. He tempts him to seek after divine status. He tempts him to envy, to sinfully desire a position, a status that had not been given to him, to covet the fruit that was not his to have. And Satan still uses this tactic today. He tempts us to covet things that don't belong to us, things that aren't ours to have. Maybe he tempts you to envy the life of another. Maybe good health. Maybe he's tempting you to covet somebody else's stuff, their reputation, the position they have, the praise that they get. Whatever it is, if you're tempted to wickedly desire someone else's things, then you need to know that that desire is sin. It is sinful. And its sinfulness is seen when we step back and consider how that desire speaks about God. When Adam, tempted, when Adam was tempted, it wasn't merely the taking of the forbidden fruit that was the problem. It was also believing the lies surrounding that temptation. Satan was subtly getting Adam to question God's provision and God's own character. He was implying to Adam, if God was really good, he would have given you that fruit. But he didn't, so he must not be good. Why would he withhold this juicy fruit from you? It's pleasing and delightful to the eyes. Wouldn't he want you to have it if he was really good? And therein we see how lies come in and cloud our judgment in the midst of temptation. Envy tells us that we really do deserve that thing that we so desire. That we're being kept from something good. I deserve that, that health, that reputation. I deserve security. I deserve that raise. And I'm not getting it, so God must not be good. Envy lies about God. And when we succumb to it, we're guilty of believing those lies. 
Next, not only does envy lie about God, envy promises security. Envy promises security. When we envy, we're acting as if possessing that thing, that desired thing, will make us secure, make us safe, make us happy, make us fulfilled. If I just had a little more money, if I had a little better health, if my children just behaved a little bit better, if I got that job of my dreams, then my life would be good and I could be happy. Just like Satan tempting Adam with the false promise of being like God, envy deceives us into thinking that gaining the desire of our heart will make us whole. If I just had a girlfriend, if I just had a few more dollars in my pocket, then, then I could be set, then I'd be content, then I'd be safe, then I'd be secure. Jesus warns us against such foolish thoughts. He says in Luke 12, 15, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says be on guard against coveting. Why? Because your life does not consist in what you own. Possessions cannot give life. Stuff cannot make you secure. Money cannot make you safe. A good job, a good reputation, a good family, wealth, whatever it is, can never have lasting security. Just ask Job. He had all those earthly things, and they were all taken. Envy promises security, but it can never provide it. Third, envy not only lies about God and promises security, envy causes division. Envy causes division. I'm thinking specifically of James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Why are there fights? Because we envy. We covet. We can't get it. Why are there divisions among family members? Because there is jealousy. Why was Corinth divided over spiritual gifts? Because they were covetous in their hearts. Why do divisions exist in any church, even Morning View? Because envy persists. Envy is a necessarily divisive sin. It splits. It ruptures. It cannot coexist with true love. It has no interest in peace and unity because it's only centered on the self. Me getting what I want. It's countered all goodness. And that's why Adam's envy forced him to be separated from God. And it's envy, among our other sins, that separate us from God. Envy divides. It causes division. Fourth, envy breeds hatred. Envy breeds hatred. It is a particularly wicked sin because it is not content to remain as it is. Envy grows. It bears fruit. If you think back to the end of Genesis, think of the story of Joseph. Joseph's older brothers were envious of the favor that their father had shown to Joseph, and so they plotted against him. But it wasn't enough for them to take the favored coat, the very symbol of the favor of the father. They wanted to kill him. They wanted more. You see, there's really two aspects to envy. The first aspect, we might say, is bare envy. 
is wanting what somebody else has. I like that, and I want it too, and I'm willing to sin to get it. But the second component of envy, which will certainly grow if not rooted out, is less concerned with the stuff and more concerned that somebody else doesn't have it. You envy somebody else not merely for what they have, but you desire to make sure they don't get it. They don't get to keep it. Joseph's brothers, didn't, they didn't want the coat. None of them laid their head down at night thinking, if I just had that coat, then all my problems would go away. They wanted to make sure Joseph didn't have the coat. Or perhaps even more clearly, think of the two women that came to Solomon. They were fighting over whose baby it was. And you remember when Solomon's solution was declared? He said, cut the baby in half and you can each split it. And the envious woman said, go ahead. I don't care. Just so long as she doesn't get it. If I can't have it, neither should she. Just pure wickedness. I don't want your stuff. I just want to make sure you don't have it. I don't want your job. I just don't want you in that job. I don't want your life. I just want to ruin yours for you. I don't want your praise. I just want to make sure you don't get any. You don't deserve it. That's not loving. But that's where we will all head if our envy goes unchecked. Next, envy lies about God. It promises security. It causes division. It breeds hatred. And lastly, it leads to death. Envy leads to death. Envy is a prolific sin. It will bear fruit. It will necessarily grow. It will refuse to remain contained. <clears throat> Thomas Watson called envy a mother sin because she bears so many children. If you allow envy to fester, it will grow into bitterness and resentment. Resentment towards the person or the thing that you're jealous of. And if that persists, it will lead to death. Adam's envy led to his own death and the death of countless others. And right after that, Cain's envy of Abel led to him kill his own, to killing his own brother. Or think to 1 Samuel 18. Saul looks out his window and he sees the women dancing down the street celebrating David's victory. They sang, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The text says that Saul eyed David from that day on. His former friend, he now viewed as an enemy, and he tried to kill him more than one time. Envy led him to try and kill a loyal friend and servant. And envy leads to death, even our own death. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, that the love of money or the sinful desire, the coveting of money, is a craving through which many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Envy, sinful desire, if left unchecked, will lead to our own death. It will drive us away from God. It will bring upon us pain and misery. It will impede our worship, the worship of the true God. Drive us away from God's presence, just like Adam was driven away from the garden. And that's because envy, at, at its root, is idolatry. It's false worship. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's idolatry, Paul says. It's acting as if some created thing, some little idol, can provide me that which only God 
can provide. If I just had my plan, if I had my things, if I had my job, my house, my position, then I'd be safe, I'd be secure, I'd be happy. And Satan's offer of life is to just take it. Take that which hasn't been given to you. You surely will not die. But it will. It leads to our death. Ephesians 5.5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, who is covetous, that is an idolater, Paul says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you covet, you're disqualified to be in God's kingdom. If you turn to an idol to save you, then God will not be your protector. Envy leads to death. It leads to separation from God and eventually eternal punishment in hell. But God has not left us without hope. Even though we all covet things that don't belong to us, we envy other people's worldly goods, we prop up idols of our own making, God has not left us without a means of escape, and that means is Jesus Christ. Let's think back through each of these five marks and see how Jesus is the solution. Remember, envy lies about God, but Jesus brings the truth. Jesus brings the truth. He says in John's gospel that if we are Jesus' disciples, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. We don't have to fear being enslaved to the deceptions of Satan. We don't have to wonder how to, how to honor the Father. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. Indeed, Jesus doesn't just reveal the truth to us. He states very plainly that he is the truth. He's the sum of all knowledge. All reality culminates. It centers upon Jesus. And nothing is fully understandable apart from him. Without Christ, we are deceived by lies. But in Christ, we can finally think straight. We can have a right view of ourselves and of our possessions. Jesus is the key to allowing us to rightly know ourselves, to know our condition. And he's the one who helps us know God rightly and fight off the lies of Satan. But not only the truth, Jesus is also our security. Envy promises it, but only Jesus can be our true security. Even though we forsake true worship, we prop up idols which are impotent to save us, Jesus has instead secured actual safety. He is our refuge and strength in times of trouble. Think back to Psalm 2, the psalm that compels all the world to kiss the Son. And then right after that promises, blessed are all those who take refuge in him, the son. Psalm 32, 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from all trouble. That's Jesus. He saves us from trouble. He is our rock and our salvation. He is the fortress that can never be moved. In Christ, we are unshakable, immovable. He is our perfect security, despite what our circumstances tempt us to believe. And how is he our security? Well, we are secure because he is secure. And he is the immovable high priest. He's raised from the dead never to die again. And he ever lives to plead our innocence. Indeed, the book of Hebrews specifically links contentment and security. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why should we fight against envy and fight for contentment? Because Jesus is never going to leave us. The assumption being is that 
if Jesus is with us, what more do we need? And if we need nothing more than Jesus, then why would we envy anything else? Third, unlike envy, which causes division and fights, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He's our peace with God and with each other. Between us and God, he's made the atoning sacrifice, which can allow us to be forgiven and be made right with God. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing lacks. No further atonement is needed. No acts of penance, nothing required other than simple faith. And when we lay hold of Jesus by faith, we are reconciled to God completely and perfectly. And flowing from that reconciliation with God, we're granted the ability to be at peace with one another. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. No longer are we at war with one another because Christ has brought peace. No longer need we to be envious because Christ has bought that which we could never achieve. No longer need we be jealous or bitter towards one another because Christ has provided everything that our souls crave. Jesus is our peace. Next, rather than envy breeding hate, Jesus himself is love. Jesus is love. The Apostle John teaches us that in his first letter. God is love. He's not merely loving. He is love. His very being, his essence is necessarily and unchangeably love. He can't not be marked by a loving disposition. And if Jesus is fully God, sharing completely in the divinely benevolent nature, Jesus too is love. His character towards his beloved is nothing but gentle meekness and kindness. He's not some cruel taskmaster demanding perfection out of you before he will love you. He grants us his love, and then he makes us lovely through his work in us. And as we're remade more and more into loving people, through having first tasted God's love, we will want to grow to show more love to others. We won't bite and devour one another. We won't be jealous and grow bitter towards others. We won't turn green with envy every time somebody else gets something that we've wanted. God's love, principally seen in Christ's redemptive love, makes us into more loving people. And lastly, rather than envy leading to death, Christ himself is life. Christ is life. We see that in multiple ways. He provides the substitutionary life that we failed to live. He never once envied others, though he certainly had opportunity. He never disdained his calling as the Messiah sent unto death. He never grew bitter about being falsely accused or maligned. He never sinfully lamented his station, his role in redemption. Rather, for the joy set before him, he willingly endured the cross. And having been the perfect substitute, he's now able to share with us his very life. He didn't merely provide a substitute's life. He is the life. And in him, through union with him by faith, we partake of true life. We are the branches grafted onto the life-giving vine. And because we're united to his life, we can have life too and bear fruit 
We no longer have to fear death nor shame because Christ has defeated them both. We no longer have to fear the grave because Christ has been raised and we've been joined with him in his resurrection. Christ is our life, our love, our peace, our security, and our truth. Do you know this Christ? Do you see him, Jesus, as the one who secured perfect life and peace and who has granted life and peace to those who believe? Then be encouraged that he is enough and that envying any worldly thing is to replace Christ with a powerless idol. Stay close to Jesus and fight for contentment by reflecting on all the blessings that are yours through him. And if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then I want you to know that your envy is leading you to death, though it promises otherwise. It's a certain death, a miserable death, a death that will not stop when you die physically, but will continue on into the next life without end. Christ offers you true joy and contentment, life and peace, and all you have to do is trust in him. Believe in his promises. Consider all that he offers and ask yourself if anything else in this world can compare. Can anything else in all of creation provide you with unshakable peace, everlasting joy, eternal security? Nothing can. And even if it could for a moment, it wouldn't last because everything you would covet is fleeting. It is fading. It is perishing. Nothing in this age will stand except Christ and his word. Read the Christ of scriptures. Read of his promises in God's word and test them. Consider them. Submit to them. Because everything else is simple idolatry that will lead you to death. So come to Christ, I urge you, and be saved this very day. Now I'd like to take our remaining time and look at each of our five points and thinking about how envy can be replaced with its opposite in Christ, can be replaced with contentment. If Christ really is my truth, my security, my peace, my love, and my life, how should that impact my life? First, rather than envy breathing lies about God, contentment accords with the truth. Contentment accords with the truth. If Christ is our truth, then our battle against envy should be a battle against lies, should be a battle against falsehood. Lies like, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I haven't earned this. Envy prompts us with a prideful unwillingness to remain content, content with our station. We want to move ourselves up. We want better. We want more. We want less pain. We want more pleasure. And we want it so bad that we're willing to sin to get it. But contentment has the truth. Contentment knows, contrary to what Satan says, that God is good. And contentment doesn't doubt God's goodness, even when we don't get what we want. Contentment knows that when we are withheld from some object that we desire, God is withholding it for our good. Not out of punishment. Because the truth is that all of our sin has been punished already on the cross. No more curses for us. Only blessings. And so we can be content in our disappointment because we know God is good. We can be content through trials. Because God is our divine physician. 
and he's giving us the medicine that we need. We can be content in suffering because we know that God is our heavenly father and he's lovingly making us more like Jesus every day. We can be content with very little because we know that even very little is more than we deserve. Contentment feeds itself on the truth, the truth of who God is, the truth of who we are in Christ. Next, contentment grows from security. Contentment grows from security. If Jesus has saved us, then we can be content through the ups and downs in life. No dark valley can scare us because Christ is our security. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. It's not my performance. It's not my financial shrewdness. It's not my career advancement. Nothing I do makes me finally safe. Jesus is our safety. And nothing can take away from Jesus' bride. No one can snatch sheep from Jesus' hands. And from that position of security, we can then hold our possessions in this life with very loose hands. We can be generous rather than envious. We can be charitable rather than resentful. We can be patient rather than irritable. We can take correction from others without being defensive and critical Contented Christians in Christ can be thick-skinned because they're secure in the hands of their Savior. And that security allows them not to be threatened by the opinions of others or even the trials in this life. And that allows for the next truth. Contentment seeks peace. Contentment seeks peace. If envy produces fights and quarrels, then a contented person can be a peacemaker. Contented people make peace by overlooking a multitude of sins against them. Contented souls are quick to forgive. They refuse to be bitter because they know the weight of their own forgiveness in Christ. Contented souls bring peace by not demanding and seeking their own preferences, but deferring to the good of those around them. Contented souls don't have to dress and act immodestly because they're envying the attention of others. Rather, a contented soul can be modest in heart and in dress because they know that their heavenly Father delights in them just as they are in Christ. Contented souls don't seek to make their voice the one that's always heard and their work the work that is always praised. Rather, contented souls are the ones that are always promoting up others, propping up others, honoring them because they know that that's what Christ has done for them. Fourth, contentment begets love. Contentment begets love. If Christ has shown such deep love towards me, a covetous idolater, then how could I not show love to others? If I'm contented, for example, I won't be greedily envious of my money and holding it tight and clamoring for more of it. What does Jesus say to the soldiers in Luke chapter 3? He tells them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, but be content with your wages. Be content. Don't seek to get more money through sinful means. Don't skim off the top. Don't lie on your taxes. Don't embezzle. All of that's covetousness. It's idolatry. Rather, love others and be content with what you're given. And contentment also bears loving fruit towards others outside of the realm of finances, 
If I'm content, then I can celebrate when somebody else is praised. I can actually rejoice with those that are rejoicing rather than being envious of their good fortune. I can speak lovingly to others, even hard truth, because I'm not threatened of what others might think of me and tie my value to whether others like me or not. Contentment bears many fruit, the fruit of love, because it is secure in the love that Christ has shown. Lastly, contentment leads to life. Contentment leads to life. Just like envy is a very prolific vice, so too is contentment a prolific virtue. A contented person lives an enjoyable life because he's free from bitterness and strife. He doesn't harbor feelings of animosity. He's not always calculating, seeking to be vengeful. Rather, he can joyfully exist because nothing in this life, no trial, no suffering, no slight, no sin against him, can rob him of his secure joy, contented in Christ. He knows that his treasure is in heaven, where no moth and rust can destroy. He knows that if he possesses the smile of God, then the frowns of any man can't crush him. He knows that his satisfaction is found in Christ, whose love is immovable, so he's not thin-skinned and pouty when things don't go his way. He can enjoy life rather than being miserable. Further, a contented man is prolific because he spreads the joy and the message of life to others. See, an envious man will be fearful, fearful of telling others about Jesus because he's afraid it might cost him something, his reputation, his job, fame, money, whatever. He's afraid of losing something. But a contented man whose contentment is found in what Jesus provides, what Jesus secures, that man can be bold in speaking the truth to a frightful world. And so as we close, I'd encourage all of us to reflect. Am I really content with what God has provided for me? Is Christ really enough? If so, then why would I fear speaking to others about Jesus? What, what could I lose? What of any lasting value is threatened by me speaking the truth in love about the gospel to others? Nothing. Nothing of lasting value can be lost. And so let us all strive for contentment, knowing that Christ has provided all that we need and that in Christ, lasting joy and peace await those who remain contented in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do just that that you would make us a contented people, that you would help us not to cling to the frail little idols of this age, but that you would show us that our hope, our security, our life, our peace is all found in Jesus, and that is secure in his hands. We need not not fear losing it because it cannot be taken from us. We pray that you would make us a contented people. In Jesus' name, amen.